So whenever I'm struggling with envy, with jealousy, with rivalry, I need to put Jesus in the proper place of authority and priority. I don't, in this relationship, need to be greater. No, I need to become less. Jesus needs to be greater. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. Every relationship, 99% at least, goes through or need to have what's called the DTR. What does DTR stand for? On the screens, DTR stands for the define the relationship talk. You know how it is. You're, you're kind of friends. You're really like each other. You're going out. And so you decide, okay, I'm going to sit down and we're going to define the relationship. We're going to say, I really like you. I want to be closer to you. I want to be in relationship with you. I'm going to commit my future to you. And then there's that moment, right, where we take out a ring, we get on a knee, and we say, I'm now defining our relationship in a much more serious way. You are now, I'm committing my life soon to you. And then there's that moment, you probably don't remember it, you're standing there before a man of God, before uh, people of God, before some people that snuck in, and, and here you are standing, you're about to say some vows, and you're excited for what comes later in the day, right, the reception. Well, what do you, what do you guys and so you're excited about that moment, and you don't remember what was said, but you're vowing to do something. What you're vowing to do is, I'm going to define our relationship now. This is now a husband and wife coming together before God in this marital covenant. And then later on in your marriage, invariably, there's going to come a moment where someone else, some other person, some other uh, job or interest is gonna come and try to woo your heart away, steal your love away, steal your affection, your, your physical charm away from the person you've committed your life to, and you have to have that moment where, no, 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 I'm defining my relationship uh, with my spouse, I'm committed to them, and so when I define my relationship, I have to forsake all other loves, all other uh, things that vie for my attention, and I have to say all the places in my heart that would have been open for others are now restricted, and I'm giving my life to you. I'm fixing my attention on you, and this is now what our relationship uh, will be defined as. Uh, you may not have had that talk. In fact, if you're together with someone here this morning, do me a favor. Later, we're going to sing a song. We're going to wrap up and put the chairs up, and we're going to leave. And, and, and let me just encourage you, uh, go ahead and drive to the nearest restaurant, spend the money, buy her breakfast, buy her brunch, and have the DTR, have the define the relationship talk. In the text that we're looking at this morning, and we have a big section to study today and next week, um, John the Baptist, or we could say the baptizer, is met with a challenge from his own followers, from his own disciples. And the challenge is simply this. What does your relationship, John, look like with Jesus? What does it look like for your relationship with Jesus? And what we're going to see uh, is that this moment here in John 3 is the defining moment in John the Baptist's relationship with Jesus. His relationship thus far uh, has been very unique with Christ, and yet now in this text, he has a moment to bring great and proper clarity as to who Jesus is in his life and who he is in relationship to Christ. And so what we're gonna do as we study this, we're gonna learn today that we too need to have a DTR. We need to have a define the relationship talk, or maybe the Lord needs to have it with us, where we say this morning, Lord, this is who you are, and this is who I am, and hopefully, like John, we can say, Lord, you need to become greater, and I, I need to become less 
and less. Lord, I'm forsaking all other interests, all other love relationships. If there's any other places in my heart that are open to worshiping or serving someone else, something else, Lord, today I'm defining that moment and saying this is only for you. Our relationship now is Lord and servant. And so uh, if you're taking note today, we're going to look at three aspects of this text. So I uh, hope you're taking note. Jot these down. This is where we're going today. Uh, we're going to look at verses 22 through 26. Mackenzie just read it. And this is competition. Now, there is a, there's healthy competition and then there's unhealthy competition. What do you think we're going to study today in this text? Throw it out there for me. Yeah, unhealthy. Yeah, we're going to look at unhealthy. We're going to look in verses 27 through 30 how John dealt with this type of unhealthy competition. How did he deal with jealousy, envy, and rivalry? We're going to see that he clarifies uh, his relationship. He has a DTR with the Lord. And then we're going to move very quickly through the last section that John the Apostle, many people believe, wrote, verses 31 through 36, and we're going to see that Jesus' testimony uh, certifies who Jesus is. All right, so with that as our outline, that's kind of where we're going today. That's all I got for you. I hope you're excited today. Let's look at the first idea, competition, verses 22 through 26. Look at verse 22. It says, after these things, after these things. You want to circle that phrase today. After what things? Well, well if you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of John, uh, this is taking place after Jesus' baptism, after his temptation, uh, after his public ministry begins. This is taking place after Jesus turned water into wine. This is after his visit to Jerusalem. Remember where he cleansed the temple? He was flipping the tables over and he made a whip and he's driving out the money changers. Uh, this is after his conversation with Nicodemus, the religious leader, about what it means to be born again. This is all after that. And so it says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, right? Uh, it says that he there remained with them and baptized. Now, the word for remain is kind of interesting. Uh, the word means to rub through or to rub against. The idea we would say in our vernacular is he was rubbing shoulders with his disciples. The idea is he continued to remain. Jesus didn't just kind of pop in with his disciples like, I'm going to teach you a few things, now i got to go, and I'm going to pop in on the weekend, now i got to go. He spent time with his disciples. He remained with them. He lived in close contact with them. A discipleship, church, takes time. We don't rubber stamp someone and say, disciple made, next. Disciple made, next. We don't have an assembly line. I wrote a book last year called Five Ships that talks about what discipleship really should look like. Very intentional, very slow, uh, methodical, one-on-one -on -one, uh, or one-on-several. And so the idea is that we take time to spend relationship with people. Now, know with me that Jesus, uh, in verse 22, is in Judea. And if you don't know where that is, uh, look on the screen for a minute. If we were to put this in relationship to the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, just picture we're in southwest Florida. Where are we in relation to Orlando? We are southwest of Orlando. So I want you to think of it in those terms. He is southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, Jesus is in all the way down to the bottom in Judea. North of where Jesus is, is um, where John the Baptist is. Now, it says that Jesus was baptizing. Later in John 4.2, we find out that it was actually Jesus' disciples who were baptizing. And that's a really good thing. 
I think it's a smart thing because what will happen is then in a few years, you know they're all going to be talking together in the church. Jesus has already ascended. He's already risen, ascended. The Holy Spirit's come, and now we're doing ministry together in the church. And someone would say, hey, Fred, who, uh, who baptized you? And Fred goes, oh, um, uh, you know, uh, Peter baptized me. And, and why? Why do you ask? Well, Fred, I'm glad Peter baptized you, but Jesus baptized me. I don't, know, I don't know how Peter's baptism was, but my baptism was. And so I'm grateful that Jesus didn't do baptisms that he had his disciples doing it. But note with me that he's doing, uh, they're doing baptisms. These are not Christian baptisms, so to speak. This is the same type of baptism John had. It's a baptism of repentance. You see, we don't have the church yet. We don't have Ephesians 1, the, the one baptism, one Lord, one spirit, one faith. The, the church isn't established yet. And so this is kind of uh, the end of John's ministry. It's still that same repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's that same repentance uh, type baptism. And so uh, Jesus' note is now baptizing and John is baptizing and we've got trouble now on the horizon, trouble brewing. Uh, when I grew up, anybody ever heard of the Far Side comics? You guys know the Far Side? All right, so Gary Larson would uh, draw these comics, and often he would just have a little caption, trouble brewing, trouble brewing. One of his pictures is this, trouble brewing. There's a, he always had the scientists, and there's a scientist building this missile. It's probably nuclear. And so as he's building it, the guy comes up behind him with a bag full of air. He's about to pop it. A trouble brewing. The next frame would be probably an explosion, right? And so trouble is brewing. Look at verse 23 and 24. Now John also was baptizing. You want to circle that word, also. Trouble's brewing. John is also baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Okay? So why is he baptizing at this new place? Well, it could have been that the Jordan River itself was low. Maybe there was a drought. We don't really know. But it he does just simply say he just decided to go there because there was much water there. Uh, now, I love this, and I see a great lesson here uh, that, that is helpful for all of us, and I'll put it on the screen for you just to understand this. John is willing to give up what's comfortable and what's knowable to venture out where there's opportunity. See, here's what John could have said. He could have said, hey, Jesus was baptized right here in this exact spot. And so we're going to set up camp here, guys. In fact, we're going to go ahead and form the East Jordan Baptist Church here. We're going to stay here. We're going to put roots down. We're going to have a college ministry called Immerse. It's going to be great. And we're not going anywhere. We're going to sell little vials of the Jordan to people. And we're going to have kind of a ministry set up here. We're setting up camp. I love that he's willing to trade that, that comfort, that familiarity to go where there's water, to go for the opportunity. Many of you... I know your story. You've left established churches to jump on what the Lord's doing here at this church plant, to say, I want to be a part of something. I'm comfortable. I'm familiar. But I want to go and go where there's an opportunity to serve Jesus. I commend you for that. You're going you're gonna to see the fruit of that now and in the years to come, uh, of following the Lord and taking opportunity. You know, the founder of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, uh, Pastor Chuck, actually, a lot of people try to make his like, start at Calvary Chapel hyper-spiritual. You know, they're like, oh, Pastor Chuck was called by God in this supernatural leading to Calvary Chapel in uh, Costa Mesa. Did you guys know that when, when Chuck was asked specifically, why did you go to that particular church? Uh, <laughs> the answer is pretty funny. He goes, well, that was the closest church to Huntington Beach where I could surf. <laughs> that, 
That was the closest church to the beach, right? This wasn't a hyper-spiritual decision. It was, that's the closest church to the beach. I'm going there. A lot of times we overthink and we spiritualize things when the reason, and a lot of commentators want to figure out, why did John move his ministry? Because there was more water there. That's why he went. And he's doing baptisms. And water's kind of important to doing baptisms. By the way, that should dismiss anyone who believes that John or Jesus sprinkled when they did baptism. If they just need a little bit of water, sprinkle. He needed a lot of water because immersion. Anyway, not, not getting on that hobby horse. But John is baptizing. Now Jesus is baptizing. Trouble brewing. Look at uh, verse 25. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. You want to circle that phrase, the Jews. That's a phrase John will use throughout his gospel, referring to the enemies of the cross, the enemies of Christ. We're known in this collection, just simply the Jews. So these religious Jews were arguing with John the Baptist's disciples about what? About purification. What specifically? We don't know. They're having a, a, a theological argument. We all can get into theological arguments. This one happens to be about purification. What'd you argue with someone about this week? Probably politics. They're arguing about purification. This was a hot topic. It was on Drudge Report there in Jerusalem. So they're arguing about this. And, and so because baptism is a form of, of purification, so to speak, it's symbolic, maybe they were upset. They didn't like it. They were like, we don't appreciate you doing baptism. We don't know what it was, but notice what happens. They must have pointed out, hey, Jesus is doing the same thing. And John's disciples were like, wait, what? Jesus is doing what John, the forerunner, did? Wait, hold on. And so they're bothered by that. They come back to their rabbi, verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified. Who's that, everybody? No, you weren't sure about that. Who is that? That's Jesus, yes. Guys, that's the Sunday school answer. You just say Jesus, and it's a yes, right? It's correct. Behold, Jesus is baptizing. Notice here it is. And all are coming to him. Oh, there's the rub. Did you hear it? All are coming to him. Jesus is doing the same ministry you're doing, but everybody's going to him. His ministry's growing, and yours, well, it's shrinking. What are you going to do about it? Wow, therein is the essence, listen, of envy, of jealousy, of rivalry. Everyone's going to them, and what are we going to do about it? I want to take a moment this morning and give you some examples of the scripture of, of this, of rivalry, of envy. I want to do one from the Old Testament, one from the New, even though this is a New Testament example. So real quick, Old Testament example of this. There's a king that Israel had, their first king, King Saul, and uh, you remember he was head and shoulders above everyone else, like literally tall. Uh, he was the first anointed king. He was the man who originally was little in his own eyes. He was anointed by God, used greatly by the Lord to lead the children of Israel. And what was it that led to his downfall? Uh, if you know the Old Testament, it was pride that ultimately led him uh, from being small in his own eyes to being great in his own eyes. Uh, and God said, okay, because of your pride, I'm now going to uh, turn the kingdom over to someone after my own heart, David. Uh, but during that time, during that season, uh, Saul was wrestling with envy, with rivalry, with jealousy. Why? Because of a song. There was a song and the lyrics of a song that really rubbed Saul 
the wrong way. I'm going to put it on the screen so you can see this. If they had Israel radio back then, they would have been playing this song more than Drake. All right, here it is. 1 Samuel 19, 6 through 9. You don't know that reference? That's fine. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, who's the Philistine? Yell it out. All right, so two of you are awake today. That's good. I'm glad you got your donut. Okay, from striking down Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Notice what they have. They have, yell it out for me, see it on the screen? Tambourines, they have songs of joy, and what else? Musical instruments. So someone's got the lyre, someone's got the harp, someone's, you know, if they had a tuba, someone's blaring it. There's the kid in the back with the kazoo, right? They're doing their whole procession. There's women dancing. This is exciting. They've got tambourines. Micah, we don't do that here, but I could see, you know, some churches, they get really excited. They got the tambourines. The tambourines have some type of flowing ribbon on it. And so this is exciting. They're banging the tambourine. They're playing the instruments. They're singing. Notice the lyrics of the song. The women sung to one another as they celebrated. Here it is. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Okay? So Saul's hearing that. He's like, wait, what? Right, they're singing this great song. He's like, yes, yes, I've killed thousands. But David's killed tens of thousands. He's like, wait, what? You know, record scratch. <laughs> Hang on. Wait, I've killed thousands. Who's this David guy? He killed one guy. What are you guys talking about? And so notice what happens. Verse 8, Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He didn't like that song. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom he's going to take from me? And then it says this, that Saul eyed David from that day on. You know, that song became so popular that Achish, king of Gath, and even the Philistines knew about it. They all knew the song. They're bringing it up like, oh, I've heard that song. Yeah, that's like a top 40 hit. And we all know the lyrics to that one. Uh, David's killed tens of thousands. Right, Saul, he has a few. And so this incited envy within King Saul. And that eventually led to his downfall. Uh, there's an example in the New Testament. It actually happened at a church. Uh, if you were to guess which church in the New Testament had, uh, had quarrels and immaturity and struggles, just yell it out. What, what church was that? What church was it? Please don't name a church here in Bradenton, okay? Please, please don't do that. Yes, Corinth. Corinth. Okay? Uh, in in the, the letter that Paul wrote to um, the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 3, he says, hey, where there's jealousy, strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Aren't you carnal and you're behaving like mere men? Uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, here's what he says. Uh, he says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, okay? The church at Corinth, leave that verse up, they had their favorite leaders. And so they were beginning as a church, can you imagine this, to form factions or cliques. They began to form smaller groups. I pray that that didn't just happen when we had moments of greeting one another, where we just kind of break off and go, and not just because we're familiar with each other, but because I'm against that guy, I don't like that group, there's some of those people, and this is our people. And here's what happened. There was a group of them, notice on the screen, one of them, uh, one group was like, hey, who do you follow? Because I follow Paul. Paul, he's, he's an apostle. He's a church planner. He's a writer. Have you read some of the stuff that he's written? He is amazing. I'm a follower of Paul. And then someone else said, uh, well, well, that's nice that you follow Paul. You know, 
we follow Apollos. He's a gifted speaker. I mean, have you heard Paul speak? Eh, it's a little awkward. I mean, Paul's a great writer, but Apollos, man, that guy can speak. We're, we're followers of Apollos. Who, who do you follow? And then this other guy with his group says, well, listen, we don't like these new guys, right? These young new guys. We're not into that. We go old school. Okay, we're back to Peter, Cephas. We, we like the original 12 disciples. That's who we follow. And then, of course, the hyper-spiritual person stands up and says, men, I don't follow any sinful man. I follow Christ and Christ alone, right? I only use the name Yeshua. I don't follow any of these other crazy. And so we all have these different groups that were embittered, that were embattled against one another based on which godly man they were following. You guys see the irony, the immaturity, the stupidity of that? Becoming jealous of others when we were all created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. See, back to John 3. Five minutes ago, the disciples of John were fine, but now they're seeing people baptized by Jesus, and the problem is that more people are going to him. Is this something that you struggle with? See, I think that this is something within the human heart, within our sinful hearts. This is a condition where you and I, we think everything's great until we see someone else. And then we begin to compete with them. We begin to have envy, have jealousy, have rivalry. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. He, he put it this way. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Is this something you struggle with? We're not going to have confession hour where we raise our hand, but maybe this is. Uh, speaking of envy, different writers have said these different things. A Shakespeare called envy the green sickness, being green with envy. A Bacon called uh, envy uh, the, the sin that has no holidays. Uh, Horace said, tyrants never invented a greater torment. Barry said that envy is the most corroding of the vices. In the critic, Sheridan said, there's not a passion so strongly rooted in the human heart as this. And Philip Bailey called envy a coat that comes hissing hot from hell. Lloyd John uh, Ogilvie said this, and this is a powerful quote. He said, envy grows in the soil, soul, uh, soul soil of comparisons and blossoms in noxious thorns of desire for what others have or achieve. Is that something you wrestle with? Certainly John's disciples are seeing this and they're wrestling with this. But I would wonder this morning, maybe you don't know the difference between envy and jealousy. What are the differences between those two? One pastor said this, and I like this. Envy begins with empty hands, a mourning for what it doesn't have. You want something, you don't have it, so you're envious. Whereas jealousy begins with full hands and is threatened by the loss of its plenty. In other words, it's the pain of losing what I have to someone else. Uh, this pastor goes on to say that envy is when a peer is promoted, when a newcomer passes you on the way up the corporate ladder, when you're the senior sitting on the bench and the sophomore is the starter, uh, when a new business starts up and overshadows your profits overnight. Jealousy, on the other hand, is when your loyalties begin to shift, when your close friends abandon you for other friends, when retirement comes and authority is handed off to a replacement. And here's what this pastor says, powerful. He says, jealousy and envy are like muggers in a dark alley waiting to do us in, to rob us of our joy, to work us over and leave our spiritual lives for dead. Are you going to let it happen to you? The only way to stop it is to walk down another street. 
the well-lit street of humility, a street lit not by its own light, but by the light of another whose sandal we are not worthy to untie. I was reading this week about fishermen. And fishermen, when they want to collect crabs, uh, they actually uh, don't have to put the top, the lid on top of the basket. You guys ever seen a crab basket? I don't know if we have a picture of one, but you just basically pile the crab in there and they don't need a top. Why do they not need a, a top for it? Because anytime a crab begins to crawl out, the other crabs grab it and reach it and pull it back in. They actually call that the crab mentality where, hey, if you're succeeding and I'm not, I'm going to pull you down with me. If I'm not going to be able to make it, neither are you. That's the crab mentality. That's the envy rivalry. And so when John's disciples come to him with this kind of jealous rivalry, listen, he has an opportunity. This is his defining moment to have a DTR. And what I want to do is we look at this section, this clarification in verse 27. Uh, I want us to learn four ways that John avoided envy jealousy, rivalry. So if you're taking note, please jot these down. Uh, we're going to look at each one of these from the text. Verse 27 says, John answered. I would have said, okay, you're all fired. Thank you so much for following me. You may leave now. Uh, here's what he says. He says, listen, guys, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. First thing I want you to write down is perspective. Perspective. Number one, perspective. John knew where blessing comes from. He says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. But what an honest and humble assessment. We know from Scripture, wealth comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from you. That in Acts, we in him live and move and we have our being. That our times are in his hands. All right? This is the day that who has made? That the Lord has made. I didn't make this day. I woke up and the, the universe is already in action. He's made this day. And so my job is to rejoice and be glad in it. But he's the one that created and sustained everything. One of my favorite worship leaders is Matt Redman. And, and about, it's hard to believe, 15 years ago, he wrote a song called Breathing the Breath. And he captures this idea really well. Here's what he says. We have nothing to give that didn't first come from your hands. We have nothing to offer you which you did not provide. Every good, perfect gift comes from your kind and gracious heart. And all we do is give back to you what always has been yours. Isn't that cool? It's all from him. So when we're envious of what someone else has, we don't actually have a problem on the horizontal, but on the vertical. See, envy is a lack of faith. It's saying, you know, God, what you've supplied for me is no longer sufficient. I wonder if it's a greater tragedy when God gives us something that we long for and lust for, but it's not the best for us versus something that we don't get and we have to wait for. The psalmist said this in Psalm 106, they, Israel, soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. What a sad place to be, to get what you want from God, and yet with that request is leanness of soul. My daughter, London, this week, she said, Dad, so I'm going to talk to you about um, getting a new iPhone. And I said, okay, honey, that's cute, and it's not going to happen, but that's, that's awesome. Let's, let's talk about it. And so she's asking and, and requesting, and so we stopped, and I said, okay, so, honey, what is better? Is it better to get from the Lord or to not get what you want from the Lord? You keep praying, and he says no. Is that better? Or is it better to get what you 
you really, really want, but in the end, it's not what God wants for you. What's better? Uh, to get the, what you long for, but there's leanness in the soul. See, half the battle, church, is recognizing and accepting what God has given us, and the other half is recognizing and accepting what God has not given us and being willing to rest. We need to have John's perspective, know where our blessing comes from. John's ministry of baptism and repentance didn't originate from himself. It came directly from the hand of God. Secondly, if you're taking note, John was able to avoid envy and rivalry by having, number two, purpose. Purpose. John knew what his calling and ministry was. Look at verse 28. You yourselves uh, know, or you bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. What's John's testimony? Well, it's always been, I'm the forerunner. I'm not the Christ. Even being, when being tempted to have jealousy of others, John could look back and point to the original testimony, his own calling. And, and he could say, listen, I wasn't called to be the Christ. I was called to come in the spirit of Elijah and be the forerunner, to do three things, to clear the way, prepare the way, and then get out of the way. I've got to clear and prepare the way, and then I've got to get out of the way. And that was, folks, the most difficult. I've got to clear away the brush, the obstacles. I've got to prepare the heart of the people and then I have to be removed. I have to get out of the way. John wasn't jealous of Jesus' growing ministry because he understood his own purpose and he knew what his calling and ministry were. So listen, when you're challenged by someone else's ministry, by someone else's family, I know how it is. We see those statuses, we see those pictures, we see that vacation, we get a little jealous, a little envious. Why isn't that me, Lord? Why don't you love me? You hate me. I know you've put me here in this horrible place with humidity because you don't love me. And we, we compare ourselves to others. But to know what our calling and our ministry is, to know who we are, is so important. Thirdly, John was able to avoid this because of number three, he had pleasure. Pleasure? Well, John knew how his life was fulfilled. It was fulfilled through glorifying Christ. Look at verse 29 with me. John says, he who has the bride is the groom, the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Okay, church, this is really important. You need to jot this down. John the Baptist was not part of the church at that time. He was the last Old Testament prophet that came on the scene uh, to usher in the Messiah. Okay? He's not part of the church, the bride. He's definitely not the groom, that's Christ, which, by the way, is an awesome admission in the scriptures of the deity of Jesus. Not only Colossians 1, but here, Jesus is the bridegroom. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, Yahweh was always called uh, the groom of Israel. He, the, Israel was married to Yahweh. So here, Jesus is called the groom. This is ama amazing. So who is John? John is the bridegroom, uh, the friend of the bridegroom, rather. What do we call that here today in our vernacular? What do we call that? He's the best man. He's the best man. Okay, the best man, who is he? He's not the focus of attention. He's the one who, who supervises bringing the two people together. He's the one that signs off on it. In Jewish wedding customs of the day, the friend of the bridegroom arranged a lot of the details of the wedding. And listen, he's the one that brought the bride to the groom. He has the joy of ushering in the bride to the bridegroom. So John says, that's part of my joy. It's not jealousy, it's joy. I get to be a partaker in this. I'm not gonna be part of the church until it's established, but I get to foresee uh, this. And so 
Jesus said this about John in Matthew 11. Maybe you forgot this verse. Matthew 11, 11 says, Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We're part of the church. And John had the joy of ushering in the bridegroom and the bride. And that brought him incredible joy. But look at this fourth point. The fourth way John was able to fight against envy is because, number four, John knew what his priority was. He knew why his influence was waning. Why? Because Christ needed to become greater. Look at verse 30 with me. He must increase and I must decrease. See, church, John's posture was humility. Jesus needs to increase and thus as he increases, I at the same time need to decrease. So whenever I'm struggling with envy, with jealousy, with rivalry, I need to put Jesus in the proper place of authority and priority. I don't, in this relationship, need to be greater. No, I need to become less. Jesus needs to be greater. In my marriage, I need to make sure Jesus is becoming more of a priority, not less of a priority. In the way that I'm dealing with integrity in my job, am I cutting corners? Am I being shady? Am I being sneaky? No, Jesus needs to be greater. He's the priority in my job. How do we fight against jealousy? Recap this for a minute. Look at this. We look at our lives from God's perspective. Right? And so then we understand what our aim and purpose is for life. And as we do that, we begin to, to bring pleasure into our life, knowing that I'm to live for his glory and not my own glory. I don't need to receive fame and greatness, but my priority is that Jesus would receive all the glory and all the fame. David Gusick put it, uh, put it this way. John the Baptist shows us that we may be very popular and outwardly successful and still be humble. He, John, had fame and crowds that modern celebrity pastors could only dream of, yet he was an example of genuine humility. He, John, also did not quit his work just because Jesus was doing a similar work and doing it for more people. He labored on, content to do what God had called him to do, even though Jesus gained more and more attention and John less and less. The DTR. Hey, Lord, I'm going to define my relationship now. You need to be greater. I need to take a back seat. Well, I want us to look at a third idea here, starting in verse 31, and make sure that we get this in today, because this is important. But we're going to kind of briefly read through this, and I'll give you some quick uh, ideas here. Look at verse 31. A lot of people believe, myself included, that John the Baptist doesn't say verses 31 through 36, but John the writer, John the gospel writer, the apostle. So let's read it quickly and make a few uh, observations. Verse 31, this is of Jesus. He who comes from above is above all, he is of the earth, is earthly, and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Will you say above all with me? You guys are not awake today. Above all. And what he, Jesus, has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. In comparison to the world, to creation, to all of history, it seems like no one receives it. And that's kind of funny because I thought everyone was coming to Jesus, right? Uh, interesting. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony, that's you, that's me, we've certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, I want to lay out really quickly 
before we close today, what Jesus' testimony, his certification looks like. So we can understand, listen, this is John turning to the audience, to you and me, and saying, okay, this is why John the Baptist was willing to become less and less and allow Jesus to be greater and greater. Because the testimony Jesus brings is absolutely five things. And I want you to write these down. We'll put them on the screen. And he lays these out in, these in this text. Okay? He says, first of all, the testimony about Jesus, that Jesus speaks of himself, is number one, heavenly. Who is Jesus? Well, he comes from heaven to earth. It's not earthly. It's from heaven. But secondly, in verse 32, he says that it's not of popular opinion. In other words, Jesus' testimony doesn't come out on a poll. Right? We're not going to walk into a college campus and say, hey, do you guys believe Jesus' testimony is real or not real? And then based on that, then we'll know if it's true or not. Now, it's not based on popular opinion. Not everyone receives the testimony. Remember, there's a crowd screaming, Hosanna, and then a few days later, they're screaming, crucify. It's not based on popular opinion. Not only that, but Jesus' testimony is accurate. Verse 33 says that, that Jesus, when you receive it, you certify, yeah, God is true. It's accurate. I'm certifying that God is true. Uh, not only that, but it's confirmed. His witness is confirmed by the one who sent him, the Father, and it's confirmed by the Holy Spirit, whom the Father gave to Jesus without measure. Uh, I like what Matthew Henry said. He said, the Spirit was not in Christ as in a vessel that has a limit, but as in a fountain, as in a bottomless ocean. Jesus had uh, the power of the Holy Spirit without measure. I love that. It's confirmed by both the Father and the Spirit, uh, but not just that, it's also trustworthy. Uh, it says that the Father has given all things into his hand. Can you say all things with me this morning? All things, all authority has been given to him. Jesus has been entrusted with the stewardship of all things. That puts Christ above all things. He is supreme. That's why we understand with Christology the supremacy of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus. He's above and greater than all things. So, if that's true, if those things are true about Jesus, his testimony, in a world of fake news, in a world where you're not sure if this, if this is accurate, if this reporter is getting all the detail, I'm not sure if everything I'm hearing is true. I see stuff on Facebook, and, I, and it's Babylon B, and I realize that was totally fake. That was totally satire. It was a joke. I'm not sure if it's true. Well, we look at this, and we go, that is the message that we have been entrusted with. Would that pastors would stand in the pulpit and deliver a heavenly, non-popular, accurate, confirmed, and trustworthy message, amen? Would that you and I leave today and have that, that same type of word on our lips? See, if we were to take this and turn it around on its head and make the opposite of this, what would it look like if there was a message that didn't come from God? You know what I'm saying? Does that, do you track with me? What would it look like if we flipped it and said this is what it looks like when we don't do these things? Here's what it looks like. If it's not heavenly, it's worldly, it's popular, it's misleading, it's really unverified or untested, and guess what? In the end, it's failing, it's failing. So listen, because Jesus is above all, his testimony is true. And listen, friend, life or wrath depend on faith or unbelief in the Son. We're gonna close this morning. I want you to go ahead and close your Bibles. I'm gonna invite Micah and the worship team forward, and they're gonna close us in a time of reflection and song as we worship Jesus. Go ahead and wrap up and get settled. I know this is the time where we shift our weight a little bit and close our Bibles. John was challenged by his disciples, and he had to have that DTR. He had to say, hey, 
Jesus is Lord. I am not. But he is I am. And he's got to become greater and I have to become less and less. And this morning, likewise, you and I need to have maybe a DTR talk. Lord, we need to define our relationship. And I need to say today, this is who you are. Because that's who you are, that's who I am. You're Lord, I'm servant. You're Father, I'm son or daughter. You're the I am, I'm the I am not. You're creator, I'm just creation. You're above all, and because of that, I'm under your authority. I'm under your direction. I'm under your jurisdiction. I'm under your banner. I'm under your protection. I'm under your truth. I'm under your love. When I was growing up, I don't know about you, I was fascinated by science. Uh, especially two things with science, dinosaurs and the universe. I love those two aspects of science. And those must fascinate all children or, or grown-up children because those are making a comeback in the movies. What do we see on all the movies today? It's, it's investigating the universe or dinosaurs eating people, right? But, but growing up, I, I loved thinking about science and, uh, and I always wanted a telescope. Never got one, thanks, Dad. Never got a telescope. Uh, but there were two different ways of of uh, magnifying something, okay? There's a, there's a telescope and then there's a microscope. And see, a microscope on the right takes a small object like a teardrop and blows it up and makes it bigger. You can see all the stuff, you're like, oh, gross, that's in a teardrop, that's disgusting. There's bugs in it, right? There's all these microscopic things. But see, what a telescope does, the telescope It doesn't take something small and and make it big. It takes something that's grand and large, and yet from our perspective seems small. What it does is it brings it back into proper perspective to see how grand it really is. Did you know the scripture tells us to magnify the Lord? We're told throughout the Psalm, Psalm 34, Psalm 69, Ezekiel 38, magnify the Lord. What does that mean? To magnify the Lord does not mean to take something small and to make it large. See, that's what you and I do with ourselves. We take someone small in light of eternity and creation and we make ourselves so much bigger than we are. You see, like a telescope, we take who is already grand, who is already beyond scope, yet has somehow decreased in size in our mind. And we say, no, I need to magnify you. I need to remind myself how great you are. I need to tell the story of who you are and in light of that, who I am. This morning, maybe it's time to stop zooming in on our life and blowing ourselves up and blowing up our situation and our, our drama and all the headache and all the pain and instead realize in light of how great and how amazing and how above all Christ is, that we this morning have that defining moment, say, Lord, this is who you are. And in light of that, I'm so small. And so I want to give us a challenge this morning. My pastor's challenge for you is to magnify the Lord. Two ways we do that. How do we magnify the Lord? One is to recount the things that he's done in your life. We did that this morning with our team. What are the ways God has been at work in your life? Have you forgotten those things? Have you forgotten that you have great health? Or you're here today and you're breathing. If your health hasn't been great, you're still here. Have you forgotten his favor on your life with your marriage? or protecting you if you're single, protecting you from those guys that bring all the the drama? Have you recounted how he's been with you in your family, how he's been with you, bringing you to this church? Have you thought lately, just Lord, 
Let me magnify how great you are. So to first do that, to recount. And secondly, to praise, just to thank him. Say, Lord, thank you for all that you've done. It's amazing who you are. So thankful for the work you've done in my life. I want us to bow our heads this morning. Maybe that's you. You say, Pastor, I really need prayer to, to in deeper ways magnify the Lord. I need to remember what he's done. I need to ask for forgiveness because I've forgotten. And I've zoomed in on my own issues that I've forgotten how glorious and how great he is. And today I just need, I just need a reminder. And, and I need to just repent of that. I need to raise my hand and say, I want to have the DTR right now. I want to have that defining moment. Say, he is Lord of my life. And from here on out, I want to surrender all that I am to all that he is. Would you raise your hand? Is anyone here this morning that's you? I see a hand going up. There's several. Anyone here this morning say, I just need prayer, Pastor. I need to reset. He needs to become greater and greater. I need to become less. Anyone else this morning? Let me pray for you who have raised your hand. Father, I raise my hand with these. Just that confession, Lord, this morning that that I am so feeble to forget your benefits. And the psalmist said, forget not, and yet I do. Lord, forgive me for that. Forgive us when we forget all that you've done, all that you've blessed us with. We thank you for Jesus. If we have nothing else to thank you for this morning, thank you for Christ who is sufficient. The greatest prayer request ever answered was for our salvation, and that came in the, the manger. It came through Christ who was made in our image and yet died in our place, crushed for our iniquities. The wrath of God poured out not upon me, who is deserving of it for being unbelieving, it was poured out upon Jesus. And now because of his resurrection power, conquering sin and death, Lord, we now have hope in a future and we're saved and born again. Thank you for that truth, for that hope. Help my brothers and sisters, help me, Lord. Help us to magnify you, to make much of you, because you're already great, you're already glorious, you're already transcendent above all things. And yet, Lord, in our minds, why, why are you so small? Forgive us, Lord. May we make much of you, because Jesus is preeminent. He is supreme. We love you, Lord. We worship you. And we want to, this morning, surrender our hearts and lives as we consider the cross and resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.